Well, I've asked you to turn in your Bibles to John 3.16. John 3.16. And before we talk about that verse just very briefly, I want to welcome you to church and say, well, gosh, it's Labor Day weekend. It's Labor Day weekend, and, and this is a holiday that our government of the people, by the people, for the people has determined that we will use in order to celebrate, uh, you know, just, just work and labor, okay? And it is, it is right that we do so, and it's traditionally sort of the end of the, the summer season, and it's always about when we're thinking about, like, buckling down again and going back to work. So I thought it would be appropriate on this Labor Day weekend to preach a sermon about work, to preach a sermon about work. Okay, so I don't want us to bum out too early about work. You might be thinking to yourself, gosh, it's only Sunday and I have the day off tomorrow and I don't really have to go back to work till Tuesday where ordinarily I'd be thinking about going back to work tomorrow because it's Sunday. But let's talk about work anyway. And let's talk about work and think about how sometimes when we go to work, we kind of forget the things that we have talked about and learned about at church on Sunday. Right? So I want to have a little reminder about what church is all about. And what church is all about is the gospel. What church is all about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is simply a word that means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think it's very well articulated and, and compacted into this well-known verse, John 3.16. This version is probably slightly different than the one you have in your Bible. But nonetheless, what is it? John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a very well-known Bible verse. All the kids learn this pretty much the first time they learn a Bible verse. It's their first Bible verse that they learn. You know, if you were raised in a home that was... Uh, that took this kind of thing seriously, it's probably about age three that you learned the whole thing. And undoubtedly, you didn't understand it at all. And it does take quite a lot of unpacking to understand why is this a summary of the good news? Well, let's just look at it for a little bit. So, for God, for God. Okay, so who is God? God is all-powerful. God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. God created the whole world and everything in it, including human beings. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But God is also, in addition to all of his qualities, God also has the attributes of being one God in three persons. There is no other being, no other creation, and he's not created, he is the creator, he's the uncreated creator. There is no other being that is one thing but three who's. And that is what God is. And so when you see here, for God's love of the world, that he gave his only begotten son, we worship a God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you heard in my prayer earlier. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity is what we're talking about up here, God the Son. He is begotten, not made. So he is not created. He's eternal which actually goes back to sort of the, the everlasting life part. Sometimes in our Bibles it says eternal life. But if we make a little distinction there, we think about ever, everlasting as being with no end. But eternal has no beginning and no end. So God the Son, just as God is, is eternal. He's eternal with no beginning and no end. But God gave him. How did he give him? He gave him because God the Son, who is God in nature, also, and get this, this is confusing if you haven't heard this a lot before, God the Son also took on a second nature. Right? So he's fully God, but he's also fully something else. He's also fully man. He also has a full human nature. That is to say, he was conceived, he grew in the womb, he uh, he was born, he lived, he grew in stature and wisdom, he had to learn certain things. Even as a human being, 
that he didn't need to learn as God because God is omniscient and human beings are not. He had to learn certain things. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. And he could also die, and he did die. So when John 3.16 says that God gave his only son, he means, uh, John here, means that God, the Father, gave God the Son in his humanity to die, to die so that something could happen. And what was this thing that could happen? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, so shall not perish, shall not die. Now, we're all familiar with death. We all know that 100% of people die. So we're kind of unpacking this part of John 3.16 that says, shall not perish, will not die, but have everlasting life. All of our lives started in the womb, but we can have life that is everlasting. And how do we do that? We do that by believing in Jesus. Not only that he is God, not only that he is fully God and fully man, but also that he died on the cross as an atonement for our sins because that is the reason why we perish. The reason why we perish is because we deserve to die because of our sins. We have a fallen, sinful nature. And we're going to talk about this a little bit as we go through Genesis 1 and 2. But it didn't start out that way. God didn't create us to have perishing, fallen, sinful human natures. He created us without that fallenness, but we fell. Our, our, our first parents fell. And that is why we all have a sinful nature. And because we have a sinful nature, we sin. And because we have, a sin, because we have sinned, God, and because God is perfectly just, he must punish sin. But because God is also merciful, he gave his only son. And what do we have to do? All we have to do is believe. We're going to talk about work. It's Labor Day weekend. We're going to talk about God's work. We're going to talk about our work. Can you earn salvation? Can you earn forgiveness? No, you cannot. It is a free gift of God. So all you have to do is believe in the eternal Son of God and that He died on the cross for you. And that is the gospel, and I invite you to believe this wonderful, marvelous truth, the, the, the most wonderful, the most marvelous truth that there has ever been. Okay? Now, we all know this, and you probably are thinking of this, and you're in uh, like that kind of mindset because you got up and you got dressed and you said, oh, it's time for church, and you went to church and you sat in, uh, you sat in these uh, comfortable chairs chairs, and I told you to bring your Bible out, and you have your Bible, and you're all thinking about that, and you're like, ah, John 3.16, I totally remember that, and I know it, and it's old hat to me, but then what happens when we go to work on Monday morning, or this week, in this case, Tuesday morning, right? What happens? All that seems to just kind of go away. It kind of goes away. It's like it evaporates, maybe, like, like hand sanitizer, I mean, do we really think about the Sunday message during the week? Are you taking these questions and reflecting on them? Is it in your prayer all week long? Are you going to work where people are frustrating, where the work is frustrating, where it might be drudgery, where maybe the, you don't have air conditioning, or the traffic is bad, or the kids are naughty? That's not if the kids are naughty. When the kids are naughty, right? Do you forget about this message during the week? So I want to talk about work and how we ought to be thinking about work as we go through, I'll just say it this way, you know, uh, Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday, we go through the week, and then we've got to think about, you know, we've got to think about what we've learned on Sunday and, and carry this message of the gospel, you know, with us. So there's a lot of different ways that we think about work that aren't necessarily the way God wants us to think about work. So first of all, I'll just mention a few. First of all, we take our identity in work. We, we find our primary identity in work sometimes, right? So you ask me what I do, and I say, oh, I'm a pastor. Right? Or you ask, you know, Dustin, what he does? Oh, he like, works for a mutual fund company. Steve Matilla, he's in real estate, right? Merrily, she's also in real estate, right? Uh, we work at Trader Joe's. We do whatever it is that we do. And then some of that becomes our identity. And we're very wrapped up in it because it's really important to us. 
And in fact, you know, part of our names sometimes, uh, literally our identity, like on our identity card, like tells us what at least one of our ancestors, but probably a whole number of generations of our ancestors, did for a living. The last name Smith, right? Blacksmith. Cooper made, uh, made uh, um, barrels. Farmer, Fisher, Carpenter, Hunter, Mason, Miller, Cook, Hunter, Potter, Harry Potter. Right? All of these names came from the fact that at some point people didn't have last names and then they, got be, they became known because he or their family or whatever was the, the Potter family. That's, that's what they did. And, and fathers would tell their, teach their sons, etc., like how to do the family business. And this got passed on generation for generation. So after a while, you weren't just Tony uh, Farmer. You know, you were all, your son was Noah, he's also the farmer, and then like more people were farming, and then, you know, generations, generations, pretty soon that just became your name. So it's actually part of our identity, right? Now it's okay for us to take some identity and work, but that's not what our primary identity should actually be, and we'll have more on that later. Okay, secondly, our view of work, right? I've mentioned this a little bit. Sometimes it's the most important thing that we do. We really just think of it as just the most important thing that we do, which is why sometimes people uh, you know, retire and then they just feel lost. Right? Or you're in a job that you really, really love and then you lose that job and then all of a sudden you're just spinning. You're just spinning into depression and downheartedness because that, that was the thing that you do. Right? Or you hate your work. It's drudgery. It's just something that you do in order to earn money and uh, there's a famous quote from, uh, from the movie Wall Street, money's just something you need in case you don't die tomorrow. So you just don't, you just don't like it, and you can't wait you know, for, for the bell to ring, like Fred Flintstone, and just yabba-dabba-doo, and you're out of there. So that's, those are a couple of views of work that you know, aren't necessarily how God wants us to look at work. And then we also think about work as primarily just the paid work the paid work that we do, right? We have a bias toward work that we get paid money for. Right? There's a lot of reasons for that because, you know, primarily because we love money, right? We just saying, you know, I want you more than gold or silver. Well, that's an aspirational song. I don't think that uh, at least some of us, I know I can't sing that line wholeheartedly because I kind of like money. Right? And it's important to us. It, it, it brings in money. And money's not bad. Money is good. It's, it's, it supports the family. But sometimes we think of, like, let's say you're a husband who, uh, you know, works in the, the workplace and, and brings in all the family's income. And then your wife or your children don't work in, in like, the, the outside world. They work at home. And then you think that your work is more important because you bring in all the money. But that's not necessarily a good thing to think about either, right? Because there's tons and tons of unpaid work. There's tons and tons of unpaid work, uh, primarily in the home, but also in places like church, right? Your volunteer work at church, not paid, but it is still work. It is still labor, uh, and it, 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 you know, we call it serving, or we call it volunteering, or whatever, or whatever it is. But it's is that. So we have this bias toward paid work, and that's not necessarily biblical either. These are just a few of the ways that we tend to think about work. Now, there are many other practical issues relating to work that we ought to think about theologically before we think about them practically, because getting the right Bible and theology will tend to lead to the right practical thinking and decisions. Martin Bucer, a theologian from uh, the 1500s, said, True theology is not the theoretical, but practical. The end of it is living. That is, to live a godly life. So let's reset our theological foundations about work by going to the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, we are now going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And hopefully that won't take you long because it is the very first bit of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, chapter 1 is, of course, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. 
And the first thing on your outline after the introduction is work is a God thing. So we are going to read through a little bit and, and think about how work is actually a God thing. Work is a God thing. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God, there's that third person, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay? Verse 5, I'm going to skip a little bit. God called the light day, and in darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning, one day. Okay, so he, God's already at work. He created the heavens and the earth, and he made the first thing happen simply by saying it. Verse 6, then God said, there are some more hap things happening, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, so this is part of God's work as well. He separated the waters which were below from the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. So things are starting to take shape now. God called the expanse heaven, there was evening, there was morning, a second day. Then God said, again, he's speaking and things are coming into existence. This is his work. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, so here's another bit of God's work. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. So three days, and God's already created all of this stuff. It's been a very productive week so far. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on earth. So God's placing them. That's part of his work. And to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that. It was, oh, sorry, I skipped something. Uh, God made two great lights, uh, the greater light, etc. Okay. And there was evening and there was morning of fourth day, chapter, uh, verse 19. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Okay, so, so let me pause real quick here. Like you've no doubt read Genesis chapter 1 and you've no doubt heard it preached several times, dozens of times here at Delray Church. Scripture is like a jewel and a jewel that has many, many, many facets. So what I'm trying to like, emphasize here is really just the facet where we're kind of focusing on, on God's work. But there's obviously lots of other things that uh, we could spend years literally just talking about in terms of how to understand this. So don't think just because I'm skipping over a lot of other things that you've been taught about Genesis 1 that it's not important. It's very important, but I want to think about the facet of work. Okay, so... God blessed, uh, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters uh, swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. It's the first time he's offered a blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Okay. Then God said, again, he's still at work and he's going to create a whole bunch more stuff. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made, there's God making, the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. God saw that it was good. Okay? All right. Then God said, still the sixth day, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. 
Male, uh, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, okay, that's very important. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Super important. We'll get to this in a minute. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is the first time that God has given human beings work. That we, that, that's our work. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food. God is a good and gracious God. He's given us and all the animals, all of this food. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, we, uh, I think we all know what happens next. It's the seventh day, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work. His work, right? His work. Had completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, set it apart, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Okay, so what is the clear takeaway message when we read it that way? Is that God was at work from the very beginning, and his work was to create the universe and everything in it. It's also part of God's work that he rested. He rested on the seventh day, which is why we have the Sabbath why he gave his people the Sabbath. Okay, so work is a God thing. Work comes from God. God is perfect and holy. So when God does work, he doesn't think of it as being drudgery or horrible, and God's not overdoing it and thinking that's all who I am is my work. He's God, and he's doing work. He's doing godly work, right? And also, we read already, he's given man some work to do uh, as well. So let's now turn to the second point of our outline, which is that work is a good thing. Okay, so we often have this feeling, as I mentioned earlier, that work is not good. You know, it, it is, you know, it's cruddy for various different reasons, right? That's because of the fall, but it wasn't created that way. Work has always been, uh, from the beginning, has been good. Right? Let's just look back at all the times that we said things were good. Verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Okay? So all of this goodness in God's work. And behold, it was very good. Okay, now also notice in, ver in chapter 1, where we just read, God gives man work. Okay? And this is before what we call the fall. So in John 3.16, we said, like, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Why do we perish? Because we sin. This is before we became sinful, God gave us work to do. And the work specifically was, God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every uh, living thing that moves on the earth. There's at least five imperatives that are, that are right there, that, like commands that we're supposed to do. Uh, and it's because just as God works, he's also created man in his image and likeness, male and female, so the image bearers of God also go to work. Right? And our work is not the same as God's work, but nonetheless, as uh, image bearers, as, as people who are made in God's image and, and likeness, we are also supposed to work. And if Adam had never sinned, which we'll get to, if Adam had never sinned, he would still be working. Right? Because work is not part of the uh, is not exclusively part of the, the sinful world. Okay? So the mandate is be fruitful, that is to say be productive. Okay, that's one. Number two, it's to multiply and fill the earth. Multiply, bear children, raise them up to adulthood, 
and then and so, so on and so forth, lots of generations. Number three, subdue the earth. Apparently, it was quite wild. Why wouldn't it be? So subdue the earth. It needs subduing, so go and subdue it. Okay? And then rule, not like a tyrant, but rule over the fish and birds uh, and the animals. Now, uh, as a side note, um, he's not telling them to eat them yet, right? In, in chapter 1, he's saying, I've given you all the seeds and the plants. He doesn't say, go eat the, the, the animals for food until after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. But right here, Adam and Eve and a lot of everybody, I guess, was, was vegetarian for quite some time. So you're not eating, you're not eating animals yet, which is uh, too bad for them. They're lost. Uh, but in any case, that is part of what we're, what we're supposed to do. So uh, then what does this mean? So he's also given us this command as male and female, right? Male and female. So we're going to continue reading in chapter 2 because we, we ended with chapter 2 and, and the rest, okay? And we're going to keep reading. Uh, I'll read it quickly. Again, there's a lot to unpack just in general, but I want to like, focus on a few different things. This is the account, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So it's, it's recapping what just happened in, in, in um, chapter 1. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, for no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. I'm going to get back to this in a minute. But uh, mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So part of God's creation process, part of his work, was to do this. Now remember, everything else that's been created, he just sort of like set it, and it, it appeared. But man is different. Man's not only made in God's image and likeness, but he is made from the dust. God formed uh, the man of the dust from the ground, from the ground. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip over the rivers, um, verse 15. Then God, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Okay, so this is part of man's job, is to cultivate and keep the garden. And earlier in verse 5, I said we would go back to that. Earlier it said no shrub of the field was in the earth yet, no plant of the field has had. For two things. Two things hadn't happened yet. God hadn't said rain yet, and also there was no man to cultivate the ground. So that's really interesting that the scriptures here tell us that nothing has sprouted yet because there wasn't any man to take care of it. So you're supposed to go into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then here comes another command. Another command saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Okay. All right. So it's interesting here. Uh, James Hamilton has this translation of verse 15 Verse 15 in our uh, version of the Bible that we use, the New American Standard, said, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. And that's all very well and fine. But uh, as Hamilton has translated it, uh, looking at the Hebrew, he, uh, he writes it like this, Yahweh God took the man and caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. That's fascinating, isn't it? This whole thing that just gets kind of translated as put him into the garden, it's, it's placed, uh, took the man and caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden. So actually, uh, Hamilton talks about it this way. He says that like, work in this case is actually a restful work. It's, yeah, it's stuff that has to be done, but it's also like life-giving and energizing. And I'm sure we've had days at work like that where you've been so productive or things have been going so well that it's like, I have a lot of energy at the end of the day. And there's, of course, other days where we feel really beaten down. But you, we've all had days where, you know, we get a lot of energy and a lot of, 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 you know, almost like rest from our work because our work is just so enjoyable. And I, 
and Hamilton says that this is what is in view here uh, when uh, the Hebrew word here uh, for rest is, is, is put in there. And, and file that away in your mind because when, when we talk about somebody else who comes along later, we're going we're gonna to think about this as well in terms of rest. Okay? Now, the notion of rest is different from, according to the Hebrew word in Hamilton, it's different from the notion of rest that, is, uh, that the Lord took when he took the Sabbath, right? when he sanctified the seventh day. It's a, it's a different word, uh, but this is, this is more like restful work. Okay, so then God gives him, uh, in addition to cultivating and keeping the land, uh, he's also supposed to teach, right? He's also supposed to teach because if you're going to be fruitful and multiply, you need to uh, tell, like the first guy who learns stuff needs to, you know, have apprentices and tell other people the things that he has learned. And he, he, commands, uh, he commands the man, and he says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Okay, file that away for a second because Adam's going to apparently teach this to uh, other people. And we'll, we'll look at a very specific example in a minute. Okay, you're also supposed to lead. We've already talked about the fish and the birds and the animals to rule or have dominion over them. Okay, all right. And part of the work that the man is supposed to do is to uh, be an image bearer of God. And because God called the light, light, and because God called, you know, uh, the, this thing, that thing, etc., from chapter 1, we, we heard that, God's also going to tell uh, the man, Adam, to also name things. Okay, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, so remember in chapter 1, God saw it was good. 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 Chapter, uh, verse 31, it was very good. And then this is the first time in 2.18 that he says, it is not good. It is not good that the man is alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Okay, so then, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. God could have done all that creating and then said, this is a rhinoceros, this is an egret, this is a serpent, or whatever, right? He could have said, hey, Adam, like, learn all these names. This is what they're called. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to bring him to the man to see what he called him. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name, okay? The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast in the field. Okay, so we have this. We have this still. We create things, or, or we, we, uh, sometimes we discover things that have been created, not by us, but, but by God, and, and then we name them. And just because they weren't named before or not discovered before doesn't mean that they weren't created before. So, for example, uh, you know, you've all heard the, uh, the, the Einstein equation, E equals mc squared. C is, stands for the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. So uh, it is, right, so that's the speed of light. And we mathematicians, Einstein, it wasn't Einstein, but you know, mathematicians gave it, a, gave it a name, which was C, called it. The speed of light, they discovered what it was, they measured what it was, and then called it C, right? There's other things like that, right? God uh, created geometry, so he created planes, and he created points. And then the locus of points in a plane, equidistance from one point, is called a circle. God created that, but man named it a circle, right? And then there's a line segment between two points on, a, on the edge of a circle, and if it passes through the, 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 point, the midpoint of the, uh, the center point of the circle, it's called a diameter, right? And then there's the length of the circle all the way around, and it's called the circumference, right? And then there's this ratio, this ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle, and it's this amazing number, 3.14159, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bunch of decimals that never ends and never repeats. God created that number. And then we discovered it. And then we gave it a name. And it's called pi. Right? So there's a bunch of stuff like that. And then other things like we create. Right? We create stucco. And then we called it stucco. We created, uh, I don't know, phones. And we called them iPhones. We, Asphalt, and it's called asphalt. Whatever it is, right? All of that stuff. 
all of that stuff. We're made in God's image and likeness, so we've got this like creative spark in us. So we create things out of, you know, also out of the, the, the dust of the ground and that sort of thing. And then we name those things, and we're allowed to name those things because we're, we're God's image bearers. Okay? So Yahweh names things. Uh, man is also given uh, things to name. All right, now comes the woman. All right, it is not good. I need a helper suitable for him. Helper for what? Well, a helper to fulfill the creation mandate, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, and to rule over the animals. Adam can't do it on his own. He needs a helper that's suitable for him. Okay, verse 20, man gave names to all these things, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So none of those animals are helper suitable for Adam, right? None of those things are helper suitable for Adam. So, verse 21, the Lord God, Yahweh God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned the woman into the rib which he had, uh, into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. Okay? Exciting day for us men. Very, very exciting. So, and, and Adam was super duper excited as well. Because look, he bursts into song. First song of the Bible. He says, he sings this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam is very aware of how God did this. right? And then also, just as he named all of the animals, he also gets to name woman. Right? And later in chapter 3, we're going to say that, like, specifically her name is going to be Eve, the mother of all the living. So woman is called woman because man named her that, which, like, goes, again, to, uh, to man's authority to name things. And, you know, this is not popular for us to say, but, like, a husband has authority over his wife. And this is the first time we kind of see this because God brought the animals and other things to to the man and, and, and sort of gave him as a steward, not as the creator and not as the ultimate owner because God is the ultimate owner of those things, but as the steward of the animals and the fish and the plants and everything else, man is supposed to give them names. And then the woman comes along, Adam gives her a name too. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this kind of indicates, again, before the fall, right, before sinfulness, that man has authority over his wife. All right, so we conclude that man has uh, authority over his wife, and that, but he is also supposed to lovingly lead and care for her. She is not just another animal, of course. She is made in God's image and likeness. So God made man in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them, right? 1 Peter 3.7 in the New Testament says that, that treat your wife well. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. This has nothing to do with her, her value, that, that uh, she needs to submit and, and the husband needs to lovingly lead. All right. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the first marriage, right? the first wedding. And it also says, it's very interesting here, that uh, in Matthew, uh, also in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, Jesus said that God said this. God said this. So this is kind of this like interesting thing because it's all narrative so far. And then there's this like little explanatory verse, which is verse 24, that explains why there's marriage. And it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus said, God said this. God who created everything said this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This sounds weird to us because we don't ever want to be naked in public around a other, bunch of other people who are naked in public, right? And what's the difference? The difference is that the man and the woman were not sinful at this time, but we are. So we're ashamed of being naked. So how do we go from them not being sinful to us being sinful? And this leads us to the third point on the outline. Work is a ground thing. Work is a ground thing. So Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is familiar to us because it tells us of the fall of humankind into sinfulness. There are so many facets of our fallenness and our sinfulness that we could discuss. For example, the fact that we have to wear clothes in order to be decent, right? But what I want to concentrate on is, is how the fall impacts work. The story is familiar, so let's read it really quickly together. 
Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has, the, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Okay, he's trying to trick them because that's not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, From the tr fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Which is not what God told Adam. Right? So remember, part of Adam's job is to teach. And he's, he was teaching, but Eve didn't quite get the, the entire you know, like mastery of the thing because she added something to it. She said, touch it. God never said not to touch it. He just said not to eat it. Right? The serpent said to the woman, here's some more half-truth lies, you surely will not die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made, coverings, uh, made themselves loin coverings. Okay, so this is the fall, right? This is the fall. And this is a really big problem because... Because of the fall, now Adam and Eve's natures have gone from being sinless but able to sin to being sinful and not able not to sin because you have to do according to your nature. Right? So this one act, this one thought followed by the acts uh, is what makes humankind fallen. And every human being that has ever been born ever since then, except for one, has become fallen, which is why I and you and everybody that we know are sinful. Okay? We are all sinful. It's not good. Okay. Let's skip over the part where God uh, finds them, and we'll go uh, to, uh, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, I just want to focus on one thing, cursed are you more than all the cattle. Okay. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I, okay, focus on this, I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, we're going to go, come back to verse 15, because it is, the, it is the first form of the good news. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your chain in pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And then the second part, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you, and not in a nice way. Okay, so the woman's work in the fall is wrecked. Okay, because what was the woman's job? The woman's job is to be a helpmate so that humankind can, uh, can cultivate and multiply and be fruitful, right? So now the multiplication part, the, the multiplying part, is ruined. It's wrecked. It's fallen. It's, the pain is greatly multiplied. Right? And, and, and the fruitfulness part is also ruined because now instead of, you know, sort of lovingly, uh, like, following her husband and her husband lovingly leading her, now they're going to have conflict. Right? She's going to want to be in charge. And, and he's going to not be nice about being uh, in charge over her. So there's the woman's work is ruined. You're supposed to be on the same page and on the same team and all the married couples who have had good marriages and like things go really well in your marriage, you know, a particular day or for a particular season said amen. Because when you're on the same page and doing the same things and, and, and arching toward the same goal, it feels really good. But it, it can never last perfectly because we are sinful and fallen which is why we need grace for one another. But listen, now the man's work is also wrecked. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from, you, uh, from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay? Now, God is so gracious, because does he curse the woman the way that he cursed the serpent? No. 
He cursed childbirth, right? And then did he curse the man the way that he cursed the serpent? No. He cursed the ground. He cursed the ground. So he's gracious to the man. He's gracious to the woman, right? God is a gracious God. He curses the ground because of it. And then work, which was good in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is now toil. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. In toil you will eat of it all the days of life. Friends, this would be such bad news if this were the only news from Genesis 1 through 3. Because Adam and Eve sinned and their nature became fallen and sinful and all of their offspring and all of their descendants, in other words, me, you, everyone in this room, everyone who's ever lived except for Jesus, we are sinful. And because of that, we deserve God's justice. We always love God's justice when we're the ones being wronged, right? Like, I demand justice. But because we're the ones who are sinful, we don't want God's justice because God's God's justice is bad for us. It's hell. It is the lake of fire. But we don't get God's justice, some of us. We get mercy, right? So now let's talk about God's mercy and the work that God has done so that he can be both perfectly just and both perfectly merciful at the same time. That's the fourth point on your outline. Uh, work is a gospel thing. Okay? Now, going back to verse 15, we read this. We read this. I will put enmity before you and the, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. In other words, he's going to vanquish you. He's going to kill you. Right? That's a headshot. That's a decapitation. He shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. So there's going to be some trade-off there, but the, her seed is going to get the better of it. And this is, okay, this is what we call the proto-euangelion, the, 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 the prototype, the, the first of the, of the good news. Okay? So this good news that we read and heard earlier about from John 3.16, that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? This is the first version of that in John uh, sorry, in Genesis uh, 3.15, right? So, between your seed and her seed, and we can tell going into uh, verse, uh, into uh, chapter 4 that, and we're not going to go much into this, but we can tell if you read ahead to chapter 4 that she was very helpful, hopeful from the very beginning because she gave birth to Cain, she, uh, be, uh, and she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord, and she's thinking, maybe, man, maybe it's Cain. But that obviously didn't work out because the first person who ever born was a murderer. And not just that, a murderer of his brother. So now Abel's murdered, right? So it's not Cain. He's a murderer. It's not Abel. He was murdered. At the end of chapter 4, Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth, which means um, set in place of, okay? God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Okay, so she's, she's hoping that right away, in the very next generation, the, the effects of the fall will be totally reversed. It didn't happen that way. Okay? But it didn't happen that way, but uh, Seth is the line through which the, the seed that is going to defeat the serpent is going to come. Okay? All right. So, this seed, spoiler alert, you probably already know this already, hopefully you do, is Jesus. Okay? The eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, is that seed. Because he was born of a woman. When he took on human nature, he was born, Virgin Mary, you guys know all this, right? And he was born 2,000 years ago. He was born, uh, was brought into human life, lived a life that was perfect because he's not born the way that the rest of us are born through male and female getting together, but the Holy Spirit came over uh, the, the young Virgin Mary and she conceived and, and this became Jesus. Okay, so he's not sinful in his nature, in his human nature, whereas we are. But he was born and he was raised. Uh, and he, he, earned, um, he earned two things throughout his whole life. He earned two things, our righteousness and our salvation. Our righteousness he earned by perfectly obeying God the Father and fulfilling the law and not ever breaking it. Okay? And 
He was criticized by the religious leaders of his day by healing on the Sabbath, which we've talked a little bit about already. He chose to heal on the Sabbath by design in order to make a point. And when he was criticized for healing on the Sabbath, he implicitly criticized them back for misunderstanding the Sabbath. They didn't get the Sabbath. What, was the, what is the Sabbath for? The Sabbath is, you know, includes things for healing because Jesus didn't sin by healing on the Sabbath. He said, my father is working until now. So even though God in Genesis chapter 2 took the Sabbath, he's working until now and I myself am working. That was John 5, 17, right? So Jesus was working in order to do this. Secondly, he achieved our salvation. He achieved our salvation by giving himself up on the cross. He was crucified. And in that, he paid for our sins. And that was the sum total of all that needed to, be hap- all that needed to happen in order to pay for our sins. Jesus took on a debt that he did not owe because we owe a debt that we can't pay. So he took it on. And all we have to do is believe in Jesus. And then that certificate of debt, the Bible says, is nailed to the cross and it's canceled out. This is good news. So Jesus' work is finished. On the cross, at the very end of his human life, Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished. And so we often think, we often talk about the finished work of Jesus on the cross, which is to say all that is necessary to accomplish our salvation was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. That doesn't mean he's not doing things now. The Bible also teaches that he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's going to come back. That's more stuff for him to do. But our salvation is secured by his work on the cross. And our everlasting life that we talked about in John 3.16 is secured by his resurrection on the third day. All you have to do is, is believe in him. And when you believe in him, you will have rest. You will have rest. Okay? Jesus is our rest. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says the following. Jesus says, In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your toil. Rest from your labor. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Hebrews 4, it also talks about how Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath rest because there remains for the people of God a Sabbath rest. But we don't have to work. In fact, we cannot work for our own salvation. All you have to do is believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in the sin-atoning, debt-repaying, law-fulfilling, orphan-adopting, Slave, emancipating, dead heart regenerating, wrath appeasing, death defeating, Satan vanquishing, God glorifying work of Jesus Christ will not perish, but be given everlasting life as a free gift of God. You can't work for salvation. It's a free gift. The only thing that we can work for is wages, and the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So come to Him. Come to Him if you do not believe. Come to Him and you can be saved. In conclusion, then we want to work out a few implications. A bunch of these we've already talked about. So these are just our takeaways for today. Number one, work is good. Work is good, so go do it. We're going to talk about this... uh, hopefully in in, in future sermons to come uh, again on the topic of work. But work is good, so go do it. But work also is toil. It's toil because of sin. Third, work is God's common grace. Everyone works, or at least everyone should work. And why do we work? We work in the same, you know, for the same three basic reasons that the scripture gives us that, that we do anything. Our motivations for anything are threefold. Number one, and first and foremost, to glorify God. Number two, to serve others, right? We earn money, it supports ourselves. We also serve others by, by doing things, right? I have a phone to talk on because Steve Jobs and other people worked on this thing and like, gave it to us. We have streets to drive down because somebody poured asphalt and we have lights to, to, to study under because somebody you know, 
Edison discovered electricity, and then we, uh, Franklin discovered electricity, Edison made the light bulb, et cetera, et cetera, right? So work is a blessing. We sang, make me a blessing. Make me a blessing to others today. We do that through our work. So you're blessing others through your work. And then lastly, to support ourselves and our families. James Hamilton in this book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord, writes this. What role does work play in the Bible's big story? By charging the man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, having dominion over all other creatures, God was commanding his image bearers, the visible representation of the authority and character of the invisible God, to cover the dry lands with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. This means that at the root level, man's task is to work in such a way that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord God is praised. The goodness of God is savored, and the character of God is known and enacted. Okay? That is a command to all human beings, whether or not they are saved or not. But, he goes on to write, thus the work that Adam made impossible by his sin is the work that Jesus has made possible through his death and resurrection and will accomplish when he returns. The earth will indeed be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So we're here to glorify God. We are made in God's image. Fourth, forgiveness is God's saving grace, and no one's, earth, uh, no one's work can earn it. Okay? No one's work can earn it. We talked about that just now. I want, you, I want us to always remember this as we go to work, Monday through Friday. Um, lastly, our work de- determines what we do, but, our, but God's work determines who we are. Okay? We gave earlier the job examples, Cooper, Smith, Potter, etc., farmer, fisher, job examples. Okay, that, that's, that's what we do and that, that becomes part of our identity. But if I uh, became not a pastor, I couldn't then say I'm a pastor. I'd be something else. If, if Dustin uh, changed jobs, he would no longer you know, be a financial executive. Um, he would be, a, I don't know, a football coach or something, right? So that would be like sort of part of his identity. But what we, you know, our work defines what we do, but it doesn't necessarily define who we are. And who we are is made in the image and likeness of God so that we should go out to our other fellow image bearers who are not saved yet and preach the good news of the gospel to them so that they can be saved. Right? Because they're all made in the image of likeness of God. We don't want to see that destroyed. We want to see that saved. This, this imago dei, the image of God, might be defaced and marred by sin, but it doesn't make it any less worthy. Right? And we are sinners. And we are not sinners because we sin. So right, the work that we do defines us but we are not sinners because we sin just the way that, like in the same way that I am a, a pastor because I pastor because I hold this job. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because of our nature. So we need a regenerated heart. We need a new nature. And God is gracious to give, us, give that to us through the belief in Jesus Christ. There are so many more issues to work for. Uh, things that I hope to look uh, into, into sermons to come. Uh, a few of the things. There's middle ground between two sinful extremes, uh, workaholic, being a workaholic, and then also being lazy, right? In other words, do we treat uh, work as an idol, something to be worshipped, or are we too idle in our work, right? Are we, wor- are we working too hard and or for the wrong reasons? Are we being lazy and not working hard enough? Uh, calling, what should we do with our lives, Ethics, how do we connect the do's and don'ts that we learn from God's word and church to the Monday through Friday work life? The gospel, how can we be Christian at work? How can we share the good news of Jesus Christ with our work friends? And if our work is unpaid and at home with our children who are not yet saved, how do we do that? How do we be gospel workers at home? How can we be bold and encouraged to share the good news and to stand up for God's law in the workplace Right? That is secular and increasingly hostile to God and Jesus, but also for God's gospel. Right? So there's just a handful of things that I 
you know, come up with off the top of my head that I want to explore in future sermons. And so uh, if there are things that you want to know about, and I have conversations, just in the last month I've had half a dozen in-depth conversations with people about work, right? And so that, that informed what I wanted to preach today, but it also informs what I want to preach about in, in future work sermons. So come talk to me about uh, these things, and, and I, want to, I want to fold them in so that it can be edifying for all. So speaking of work, we are at, uh, we're close to the end of my work here in the pulpit for today. And so uh, we are going to finish with communion, and we're going to bring Landon uh, back up here to lead us in song. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a, a representation of the work that Christ has done for us. He gave his body, which is represented by the crackers that we are going to eat. He spilled his blood, which is uh, represented by the juice that we are going to take. And he still has things to do Right? He is coming back. He's got a lot more to do. Which is why in the scriptures we say, uh, the scriptures say that you know, as often as you uh, eat from the bread and drink from the cup, you declare his death until he comes. Until he comes back, that is. So let's work and be ready for when he comes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord God, that you have been gracious with us, that you have given us work, that you have made us in your image and likeness, that, that we can be somewhat like you and have work to do and, and to, to have dominion over the things that you have given us stewardship over. And we pray, God, Lord God, that we would be faithful in these things. We thank you, Lord God, also that you are merciful and gentle with us, that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank you, God, that you raised him up on the third day as a down payment, as the firstborn of all creation, that, that when we work, we work for him, as Colossians says, as we read earlier, that we work for him, that all things are created for him and by him, and that, that we do all to glorify him. And let us be faithful in our work, both in our, the work that we do to bless others and in the work that we do uh, more directly on your behalf. Uh, whether it's serving the church or, or simply glorifying you and sharing your, your gospel uh, to a lost and perishing world. We thank you for these things. We bless your holy name. Give us your Holy Spirit and, and pour out uh, more and fill us more with your Holy Spirit that we may be empowered to do wonderful th uh, things for your glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>